This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the BCHA or its board of directors. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. So today I'm here to talk about populism. So the first thing to discuss will be a little bit about what exactly that term means. I know it has a a couple of different meanings. Um, There are some people who use the term in a positive light. Here I'm mostly talking about it as a word that incites panic. So I, I think a lot of us have become aware of, uh, of what seems like a disturbing trend. Um, so the obvious, the elephant in the room, the orange elephant in the room, is of course Donald Trump. Other, other examples include uh, Brexit, which kind of seems like maybe it was an economic issue, but there was a lot of racial animus driving it. Another movement that, that dovetails with with this kind of racial resentment that we're seeing on the rise is uh, uh, authoritarianism, like the belief in that there's a need for a strong man to make everything right again, uh, and anti-intellectualism, this uh, distrust of experts, uh, distrust of people who have studied whatever issue is being talked about. So these are some of the things that that we um, we group together into the common term populism. But it's worth considering um, what meaning we could give to this, this word, populism. Because um, as uh, Nassim Taleb, who some of you might be familiar with, quite rightly pointed out, uh, we have a tendency to call the system populism when it, does what we, when it does things we don't want it to do, and democracy when it does things that we do want it to do. So it's, it's one of those word pairs where there's a good version and a bad version of the same thing, and we hide that slate of hand from ourselves by using different words. For instance, childlike is good, childish is bad. Anyone notice that? But I think that alone is not enough of a reason to discount the word populism and remove it from our lexicon. I'm more in favor of renovating the lexicon and finding a way in which the two words can retain some meaning. So populism and democracy both mean government by the people. So then the question is, what is governing the people? How are the people making decisions? How, uh, what is motivating their actions? Uh, and the way that I would, I would frame it, if the people themselves are governed by the limbic system, so the limbic system is the part of the brain that handles the fight-or-flight in- instinct. It handles... Uh, Perceiving people as, uh, as us versus them. So when I'm, I'm meeting this person, are they a friend or a foe? Uh, when people are in that state, that is what I would describe as populism. If, on the other hand, they are motivated by good faith, so a sense that the people that they share their society with are just as interested in things as them and are willing to uh, discuss ideas, and even attack their own ideas when necessary to ensure that they get the best impression of the truth that they can, that is, that is true democracy. So, of course, by that definition, democracy has never existed on the face of the planet. But we can talk about a spectrum, right, between populism and democracy. Uh, some states are certainly more democratic than others. And I think a properly democratic state can exist. So, it's a bit... it's. Uh, it's challenging to uh, 
to create the conditions under which a proper democracy can occur. And as I think we're seeing now, uh, the conditions, like these conditions are more fragile than they might seem, uh, even, even in societies that have been democratic for long periods of time. So having distinguished populism and democracy, I think it's important to add a third category, which will also be fairly imprecise to any political scientists in the room. Um, but I'll use the word fascism to describe it. That would be a society where the people are not in charge. Uh, it's a society where the strong, or the people most capable of wielding violence, are in charge. And their right to authority comes from their ability to exact violence. So we can think of this as three levels of discourse. So sort of like a ladder, where the lowest rung is fascism, uh, the next rung up is populism, and the rung after that is democracy. So the question that I think is most important to consider is how do societies ascend and descend on this three-runged ladder? Since at the moment what's been occupying me the most is how we descend the ladder, that's what I'm going to discuss first. So we're going to talk about how democracies become populist states and also how populist states become fascist states. So I'm going to begin by talking about the way that populism gradually transforms into fascism. So the concept that I will use to describe that process is terrorism. So generally speaking, usually what we're talking about when, when, we, uh, when we say that there's a group that is engaging in terrorism is that they have, uh, they have begun working in a society that may be unstable but is peaceful, and they permeate that society with the threat of violence. So what's important about this is not so much um, that a lot of violence is done, but just that the perception is created that if anyone steps out of line or steps out of the ideology that the terrorists are pushing, they may uh, be killed. And no one wants to be killed. So psychologically, they prefer not to take chances. Uh, and it creates a situation where people no longer feel safe enough to engage in any kind of civil discourse. So what I've been observing, like since the election of Donald Trump, I've been paying a lot more attention to American politics than I was before, uh, in particular on Twitter, which is an interesting ecosystem to participate in because you get all sorts of people and you kind of get an impression of how, um, like how a town hall might go with, uh, with people from all over the country, all over the world, where there's no common standards for how, for how the conversation is supposed to go. So people hang out with their friends mostly, but there are all these interfaces. Like anytime, anytime any political question comes up, people have wildly divergent opinions and things get explosive very fast. So there's another, there's another kind of terrorism, I would argue, which is, which is more subtle than, than the explicit terrorism of violence, uh, which I will call limbic terrorism. This is essentially acts whose intention is to permeate society with with a, sense of, uh, with a sense of fear. So fear isn't always fear of violence. The other, the other thing that people are most easily made afraid about is their, their reputations and their livelihoods. So if someone feels that if they speak out, they might be uh, harassed and intimidated by a large number of people uh, and become the victim of a smear campaign where a lot of false stories are propagated about them, uh, this in itself might be enough to shut them up and 
and take us away from a democratic state where we can, where we can share our ideas honestly. So I think this is at the heart of what we're seeing today in the United States, that there's a, there's a kind of limbic terrorism that people are engaging in um, as a way of preventing rational discourse from taking place. And it's worth noting, like, this isn't just uh, on the side of the most ardent Trump supporters. There is definitely a lot of violent, like, rhetorical violence and intimidation that comes from that side, but we do see it from other quarters as well. Um, there is a tendency to say, if you don't hold these particular sets of beliefs, uh, you're one of the enemy. And what's important is not to build your beliefs in a solid, constructive, rational way, but just to have the ones that the group has decided are acceptable. I, I think there's a, there's a dangerous level of that in our society. And when that happens, that leads to fragmentation. That leads to the breakdown of discourse. So what I've talked about so far are the three different uh, levels of discourse that I've identified as ways that a society can function. And I've also talked about how discourse uh, degrades and the kind of tactics that are used to take, to take a, a state that's in one condition and lower it to, a, to another condition. Uh, something that I want to emphasize about, about terroristic tactics is that the goal of the terrorist is always to reduce the discourse to a level that they control. So I think this is an important thing to consider, especially when, when people get especially militant about uh, Islamic terrorism, for instance. If you look at the literature, which I have done only in a cursory way, but um, other people have looked into it more, more deeply, uh, of Islamic State, a kind of black and white world where the people who are loyal to Islam are on one side and everybody else is on the other side, is in fact what they are seeking. That's what they want. Because that's a world of clarity, and it's a world where they are at the apex. They control that world. So what's disturbing, of course, is that's also the world that the, the military hawks in the United States want. Uh, someone like uh, David, David Fincher, uh, one of the ones that's been tapped for Trump's cabinet. He has that similar kind of belief that that Islam as a whole is something that must be eradicated violently. And that's the only way to, way to solve the problem. That is the kind of world that the Islamic State in itself is trying to build. So there's a kind of cooperation that comes from this. When, when people on both sides would rather live in a world where the discourse is, is violent. Because that's a world that they understand and that they control. So with that in mind... The thing that I, that I've, that's most important to me right now is, like I think about almost as much as what's going wrong, how can we make it go right? Because I've, I've heard a lot of very disturbing things, like in the United States, there's this fear that, that it's becoming more like Russia, it's being modeled after the Russian state, where there's one press conference a year, uh, people have very limited media, like the media has very limited access to the administration, there's no transparency, and the media is kind of used as scapegoats or uh, they're manipulated by giving them access to just enough information to keep them going, but not enough that they become a credible source of resistance to the state. So there are a lot of ways to fight back, a lot of ways to improve the society that we live in, but the one I want to focus on is just how do we raise that level of discourse? Uh, how do we go from something uh, where people 
can't share their opinions without fearing for their livelihoods or their personal safety uh, to one where people can share what they really think uh, without fear in a way that allows people to uh, come to common understandings and be capable of, of changing their, their intellectual positions on things without that being seen as a sign of weakness. Uh, I'd like to reemphasize that one of the most important things about a democratic state is that people don't just attack uh, the ideas of others, they attack their own ideas. Because the goal is to, is to find the ideas that are the strongest and best and closest to the truth. And in service of that goal, they're willing even to uh, abandon things that they've believed. So, uh, psychologically, when, when people face the discomfort, the possibility that they might be wrong, they can deal with it in a lot of different ways. And admitting, admitting that you're wrong is, uh, is difficult, but it's also, in the long run, the least damaging way of, of, dealing with, uh, of dealing with that situation. So, of course, that's what we prefer, but often when people are afraid, they cling to their beliefs rather than, rather than striving to change them. So creating a world where people are less afraid uh, is, is vitally important. So the, the question that I began with was uh, how, to, how to elevate the level of discourse. And so there's, a, there's another, another point I'd like to make there, which is that, like there's this phrase, uh, they go low, we go high. It doesn't work that way in real life. When, when people are being, like when people, when, when someone is opposing you with violence, you can't respond, you can't just respond with, with a reasoned argument you also have to respond to the threat of violence. There's, there's no, other way, no other way to do it. You'll be undermined otherwise, and it won't matter that you were right. So there's a kind of uh, realism that must be engaged in uh, in order to effectively uh, combat terroristic attempts to, to lower the level of discourse. So they do need to be responded to directly. But what separates an agent of democracy from an agent of populism is that the agent of democracy must not only engage on a populistic level, which means essentially uh, doing battle on the basis of reputations, social standing, like who's the more impressive person. That, that's kind of how a populist debate goes. Uh, but also simultaneously to keep the door open to, to a higher level of discourse, to say, I, I face these, these attempts at defamation of my character but uh, I'm stronger than that. And uh, in addition to defending my character, I will also say, like, do everything I can to keep the discourse focused on, on the ideas that are actually important to engage in, uh, the ones that actually have the potential to unify us rather than to divide us. And in that vein, there's an example I'd like to give. Uh, it has to do with the Sandy Hook school shooting. And I don't know how many of you have heard about this, but there's there's a very strong uh, movement, obviously a very small minority of people, uh, who pushed the idea that um, this particular school shooting was a false flag attack that had been uh, engineered by the government to, to build support for gun control. It's, <laughs> it's, it, it's interesting to see how, how these things build up. I think one of the, one of the things that happened there is uh, they couldn't face the idea that someone would actually do something like this if they were given a gun, so they had to create a different world where, where, the, where the people involved didn't actually exist and was all a fiction, because that was more comfortable to them. But the people who, uh, 
who pressed this, obviously, once they came to this belief, they were quite fanatic about it. And enemy number one was the parents of the, of the victims of the shooting, because they were the ones who, uh, who said, you know, they were the ones who, in, in the minds of these uh, conspiracy theorists, were, were lying and trying to take away everybody's guns. When in reality, they were people who had lost their, their kids. So to some extent, they were in a similar situation where they had the truth on their side, but they were still facing intimidation for, for speaking it. Uh, and of course, in a situation where you're trying to move on from something incredibly tragic that has happened to you, uh, it's very difficult to, at the same time, emphasize the truth and fight for the truth. So this is from an article I read about the topic. It was a very depressing article, but there was one light of hope in it, which came from the way that the community of Sandy Hook uh, responded to these allegations. So in the process of rebuilding their community, uh, for reasons unknown, there was a particular object that became a, a symbol to them of the, their restoration, uh, and that was a yellow rubber duck. So somehow that became the symbol that, that this community could, uh, could survive the tragic thing that, could hap that had happened to it and could rebuild. So one of the tactics of the conspiracy theorists was something called doxing, which is where you, take the, you find the contact information of a private citizen and you make it public so that they're open to uh, harassment from anyone. So it's a very, very simple, uh, quite effective means of intimidation. And what some of the people in, of Sandy Hook did is um, they found the people who were, who were pushing the conspiracy theories the hardest, uh, and they, they doxed them. And one of, the, one of the things they did is they sent them uh, boxes and boxes of yellow rubber ducks. So... In another context, that wouldn't be an intimidating thing to do. <laughs> but because of the symbolic meaning of the rubber ducks, and because these people were, like, you know, if you're a conspiracy theorist, you're, you're fighting hard for what you, for your own twisted beliefs, but you're also uh, scared to death of retaliation. So something that in another context would have been a peaceful gesture became an intimidating one. And it was a way of... Uh, undermining their confidence and making them feel less secure in their own anonymity as they attack this community. So I guess what I'm saying is, um, in, in responding to, some, to, a, to a populistic movement in kind, that doesn't necessarily mean that, that you have to use the same blunt instruments of uh, defamation that they use. There's still room to be creative. And the emphasis, of course, should always be on basically on defense, right? Defending the reputation of yourself and others, making them feel safe to speak out. And just by doing that, you uh, create the space for an improved level of discourse. So the, the final point I wanted to make. So this is something I noticed when, like fo following the campaign of, of Donald Trump, there's this phrase which, uh, it's very twisted to use it, but it's also incredibly appropriate, which is first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win. And while that quote, I believe, was initially uh, by Mahatma Gandhi, um, it applies very well to what happened with Donald Trump. The people who opposed him all believed that there were safeguards in place that would prevent him from getting nominated, prevent him from rising in the polls, prevent him from winning the election, prevent him from being inaugurated, uh, and so on. But all of those safeguards failed. And I think only now, like yesterday, there was... Uh, the, the, big, the single biggest act of civil protest in history, uh, the, the Women's March. 
happened in the United States. So this is an example of, a, of an active force, you know, in, oppos in opposition to a pop populistic leader. And that, I think that, that, will, that is what was lacking as, as the man slowly built up an influence and power without, without anyone, well, with people realizing too late the threat that he presented. The moral here is that active forces always defeat passive forces in the long run. Wind erodes mountains, no matter how big and powerful they are. So my message then is if you want to be uh, an agent of a, of a higher level of discourse, never be the one standing still. Always, always take action. Look for things, things to actively do to maintain the health of, of your community and your society. That's all I had to say. Thank you.